0: Um, I'd like to welcome you all tonight to um, the joint LSE and U.S. lecture. And I want to give you um, a little bit of background on why we have this joint lecture. In fact, this is our fourth LSE and U.S. lecture. And it comes out of a developing partnership between the two universities. Um, And over the years, we have developed a partnership in uh, three distinct areas – One is teaching. We teach a two-year dual degree whereby students obtain an LSE Master's in Public Affairs and NUS Master's in Public Policy by spending one year in London and one year in Singapore. Um, We also have um, collaboration where the NUS Business School hosts a one-week module as part of LSE's two-year Executive Global Master's in Management Program, um, which includes special events um, also uh, with corporate government and alumni guests. We also have collaboration at the research level. Um, This goes both with the staff and the PhD students, and particularly for the PhD students we have an exchange, um, and I'm not sure if there there are a couple of PhD students here, um, but for those of you who are here and who might be interested in this during your time here, you, uh, the, the LSE will contribute for you to go to uh, on a short-term visit to NUS to use the libraries, their archives, or anything else that you may be working on. Right, and we also have, of course, this lecture. So this is our fourth LSE NUS public lecture, and um, the topic is up there. It's going to be on cross-border cross-referencing sorting out Indonesian confrontation in the field. What the lecture is really about is confrontasi, the confrontation that we had um, between Malaya and um, Indonesia, or Malaysia and Indonesia, towards the latter part of it. Um, And this is what we're going to be um, hearing about tonight. Our speaker is Professor Brian Farrell, who is a professor of military history, and he's also currently the head of the Department of History at the National University of Singapore, which is why the International History Department here at the LSE is hosting this. So it's historians to historians. Um, He's been at NUS since 2003, and during that time he has published extensively on his main area of research interests, which is military history of the British Empire. Um, He has also engaged more broadly with the study of imperialism, and its influence on Asian and global history, as well as with wider problems of military history in Asia in the 20th century. Um, in pursuing questions in these areas, he has undertaken archival, and notably field work, and I think we will be seeing quite a bit of this fieldwork today in various locations, um, fieldwork for all of his work, uh, his research been in North America, Europe and most extensively in East and Southeast Asia and Oceania. Uh, currently, uh, Professor Farrell is um, the act, acting as a principal investigator on the major research project of Empire in Asia, a New Global History, and he's serving as Asia-Pacific Regional Coordinator for the Society for Military History, the largest of such professional organizations in the world. And I think at this point, any latecomers probably have found their way here, so I think we can now move on to what you really want to hear about, because you don't want to hear from me, you want to hear from Professor Brian Farrell on Confrontasi.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And thank you LSE for inviting me, it's a pleasure to be back in London again, it's been far too long, and a great honour to be asked to come and speak to you today, it truly is. And the fact that it gets me a week out of the headship is just wonderful. No meetings for a solid week. This is fantastic. Do some real work. Uh, Can I, pardon me, and make just one small correction? I've actually been at NUS since 1993. Every expat remembers this. I can tell you, 1155 on the 12th of May, 1993, is when I touched down at Changi Airport. And I flew in from Montreal, my hometown, and walked straight into a sauna, and thought, oh my god, what on earth have I gotten into? Am I going to be able to survive here? And I look back on that and laugh now, because this was in the middle of the night in Singapore when it's actually cool and comfortable. But to me, it was like an open fist. By way of an introduction, can I just, with apologies to those of you who've glanced at it, can I just read out my abstract to give you an indication of how I've approached this topic and framed it and what I'm going to do? But then I promise I will set it aside. What I've put together for you is a PowerPoint presentation that I'm going to platform off rather than read out a set text. I've heard too many set texts in my life. I don't want to inflict one on you, but by way of an introduction, and that's because my eyes are playing tricks on me the older I get. In January 1963, the government of Indonesia declared open hostility to the project to consummate Malaysia by merging Malaya, Singapore, and the British territories in Borneo. Indonesia confronted Malaysia in a campaign that combined, quote, "public invective, economic blockade, piracy, subversion, and direct armed aggression," unquote. That quote is taken from a Foreign Office report of April of 1963, which was actually looking back on the confrontation that Indonesia had pushed against the Dutch regarding West <coughs> New Guinea the two previous years, but it was a remarkably accurate forecast of what the Commonwealth was about to face. In its three year ordeal with Sukarno's Indonesia. This campaign, or confrontation, was an undeclared war that featured numerous incursions by relatively small groups of armed men across long recognized international frontiers on land, at sea, and in the air, ranging from Sabah through Sarawak, Singapore, and Peninsular Malaya. Cross border operations were most intense in the First Division of Sarawak and across the Straits of Malacca and Singapore. Those same frontiers, however, cut across, or arbitrarily divided, much older networks and routes of trade, smuggling, and the general movement of goods and people. These networks and routes invariably connected closely and meshed ethnic groups, often with strong kith and kin connections. Exploring the military operations of confrontation on paper, in archives and libraries ranging from London to Wellington convinced me that the, quote, sharp end of this war could only be fully understood by exploring this collision caused by a war between states fought across borders the local populations had always been inclined to ignore. So in this seminar, what I wish to do today is to discuss the work of a military historian in the field using the ground itself and the people who lived and worked on it as a primary source ranged alongside the archival records generated by those who tried to impose their conflict on the area. And the two themes that I'm going to develop today and bring up are local agency, a very important aspect of confrontation, and what it tells us about the nature of the conflict. I'm not here to make a revision in what I guess would be the established United Kingdom view of confrontation. That was expressed by the then-Defense Minister Dennis Healy, who said at the time, and repeated himself years later, that this was the most economical and successful and effective use of military force in the 20th century. If you count by whatever bottom line you choose to use, casualties, money invested, ultimate political outcome, that's not an unreasonable assessment. But as is always the case, it was a little bit more complicated than that. It was more of a near-run thing than later appeared to be the case, as came out through the biographies and memoirs and secondary sources that began to emerge decades later. And it relied, in particular, a lot more on contingency and local agency than usually appeared to be the case in studies that were either drawn from a UK vantage point or based almost entirely on UK memories or UK sources. Now, this isn't particularly surprising... (coughs) But it was something that struck me very forcefully when I brought the received wisdom of the archives and the primary sources, lopsided as they are, into the field and began using them to try to interrogate some of the people who had lived through these events in one way or another. And I think it's fair to say that of the countries involved that I'm most familiar with, confrontation or confrontasi remains an important part of the Malaysian national narrative, particularly in Sabah and Sarawak, is something of an interesting episode in the curriculum of national education in Singapore, by no means ignored or overlooked, but has become almost a forgotten episode in the Indonesian historical memory, greatly overshadowed and eclipsed by all that followed, of which, of course, it played a large part. So can I move on first by talking about the problems that one faces? No? That's right, it's vertical, not horizontal. The question that I wanted to ask, how did I first get into trying to pursue this so aggressively in the field in the first place? What I was reading from the archives, very lopsided in that you get very little Indonesian material, some Malaysian and Singaporean material, not a lot, and an unmanageable amount of British, Australian and even New Zealand material fill this room many times over with all the files that are now available. Even with the interesting gaps created by signals intelligence and human espionage. But the story seemed to stand up. Commonwealth military efforts to contain Indonesian military incursions, which were not large scale to begin with, appeared to be consistently extremely effective. Why was this so? One received wisdom coming from British military sources, whether they were human memories or recorded impressions is that the competency of the Indonesian armed forces left an awful lot to be desired, whether these were the organized regular forces of the state or the grab bag of volunteers, renegades, mavericks, who appeared to be so heavily involved in this cause. That didn't quite ring true to me, for reasons I'll develop in a few minutes, but it did appear that, indeed, there was a consistently effective, aggressive tactical defensive on the part of the Commonwealth military coalition which defended especially Borneo, but also peninsular Malaysia and Singapore. So that led me to the question, would answers to this, would answers to this question, why did the Commonwealth military do so well? Would coming up with any reasonable answers to that question shed any light on the nature of the conflict itself? I mean, this is a conflict in which even some military historians suggest does not warrant or deserve the label war. Some will just go no farther than low-intensity conflict and leave it at that. No one, of course, ever declared war, which once became a problem when the issue of prisoners came up because, of course, a declaration of war is a legal position, endowing legal status on combatants. So this was a bit of a dangerous gray area, but everybody skated past that. Nevertheless, this is the road that drew me into the field regarding confrontation, Why did the Commonwealth do so well militarily? And if we could better understand that, what would it tell us about Confrontasi as a whole? So moving forward, I will use the term Malaya from now on to refer to Peninsular Malaysia, to West Malaysia. I will separate that and I will call Sabah and Sarawak either the Borneo territories or Sabah and Sarawak. This is incorrect now, of course, since September of 1963, but I'll use Malaya to refer to that peninsular entity. It comes importantly into the story. There is some memorialization of confrontation, especially in Borneo, and it is, as you would expect, r- romantic and rather dramatic. This particular tapestry hangs on the wall of the Hotel Merdeka, or Independence, in Kuching, which, if there was a front city in confrontation, it was Kuching in Sarawak. And interestingly enough, it's a a pretty loose copy of the memorial to the emergency that stands in the center of Kuala Lumpur. However, all of the faces are recognizably Caucasian, every single one of them, even though the Malaysian security forces, organized, regular police, and volunteer were heavily involved in this as well. And you would think that it would be (coughs) politically expedient not to have a visibly foreign memorial in the one part of Malaysia that remains quite interested in confrontation, and that is Sarawak and Sabah. There it is, however. The problems facing any scholar trying to take a look at any any aspect of this conflict, whether it is the international relations that really kicked off the first wave of archival studies by people like your own, Matthew Jones or John Sabritsky, the international relations and diplomacy aspect of this or whether it is the problem of its impact on Southeast Asia and the evolution of a new international order in Southeast Asia, or the impact of politicization of people in the territories in question, or the military operations, that this was an undeclared low-intensity war with plenty of fog. There was a lot of fog of war here, in particular because this was a conflict which, for a lot of reasons, plenty of people were invested in and quite willing to perpetuate or continue But nobody really wished to expand or escalate. Only one or two of the vested interests in this had any real interest in pushing this to a higher level. And there was almost a conspiracy of, shall I call it, an unwritten or undeclared agreement that we will keep the violence at a certain level and leave it at that. And one of the great turning points in the conflict is when The Indonesian government appears to veer away from that unwritten agreement by doing something which does drastically escalate the conflict, at least in terms of its impact on international relations. Nevertheless, you've got an undeclared low-intensity war with plenty of fog, and you've got very lopsided primary textual sources, as I've already mentioned. There are different schools of thought about this. Kirsten and I were discussing this earlier. Did a lot of Indonesian official records even survive in the first place? If they did, where are they? Getting anything out of Arkep Nagara can be quite an ordeal. And even if you find something, record-keeping in the various agencies of the Indonesian state, whether it was the army or the national police or the foreign ministry, was haphazard at best. By contrast, the British records are almost anally well-organized, and of course, as a result, they are absolutely massive. So you really do get very lopsided primary textual sources. An awful lot of literature about confrontation and conflict in 1960s Southeast Asia is drawn very heavily from Western archives because there's so much there compared to anything that you might find in the region. There were also intrinsically tricky military operations, because this was a low-intensity conflict, because the numbers of combatants involved were so small, because so much of the actual military operations were covert, deliberately and by design, and many of them even unavowed or disavowed, and deliberate misrepresentations. It was the declared policy of Britain and its Commonwealth allies, for example, to insist, as the government of the day did in Parliament 14 times from 1964 to 1966, that Commonwealth forces were not acting offensively across the recognized international frontier in Kalimantan, when of course they were. A quite deliberate strategy had been authorized and endorsed by the major Commonwealth governments to do just that. So for the one and only time that I know of in post-1914 British military records, contact reports in war diaries and other official papers were falsified. Grid references were given that were actually within the Malaysian side of the international frontier for contacts that took place in Kalimantan, on the Indonesian side of the frontier. And those mistakes, not deliberate misrepresentations, have never been changed. So if you go down to Q to the National Archives and pull out the DEFE 4 or 5 series and start looking at the quarterly reports of units serving in Borneo, you will see an awful lot of records of military operations that have deliberately wrong grid references for contacts. This was Another part of the problem. But the one that began to interest me the most, the more I got into this, was what, after all, was the interface in the military dimension of this conflict. The scene of the actual physical collision of, of the armed men, be they organized, regular forces, or some category of irregular or volunteer. And that was crossing a border, crossing a recognized line of international demarcation, a boundary that went back to a colonial agreement in the early 19th century between the Dutch and the British, not long after Sir Stamford Raffles established Britain and Singapore by simply putting himself there and assuming that Leadenhall Street and the East India Company would back him up. So this is a long-established international frontier, which, in terms of military problems for the combatants involved, especially in Borneo, was broken up, interrupted, or defined by ridgelines and rainforests that involve the collision or the overlapping or the intermingling of state space and societal space. And I will throw in, because it's both fascinating and revealing, a scrap in inshore waters. Very closed, close proximity, small small draft boat inshore waters. The gap between Indonesia and Singapore, for example, in the Straits of Singapore is barely 30 kilometers. You can get across in a ferry in 25 minutes to go to one of the resorts in Batam Island. From my window every day, I can see Indonesia, even with the pollution on a bad, hazy day. Right? And it would take no more than 45 minutes to launch a raid across the Straits of Singapore. So we're not talking about the open sea here, very much inshore waters, but also <laughs> a recognized, long-accepted and clearly delineated international frontier. What role did that frontier play in defining this conflict, its course, its outcome? That's a question that really began to interest me more and more. To situate this, the macro theater of operations really amounted to the whole of what became Malaysia in September of 1963. As I'm sure you know, Borneo opted out, the Sultan deciding that he wanted to remain very, very rich rather than participate in the rotating kingship of Malaysia which caused a problem right from the beginning because Brunei was the prize, of course, that Umno and the Tunku Abdul-Rahman, Prime Minister of Malaya, really wanted. However, Sabah and Sarawak were also very important, as was Singapore, and the merger of these territories with Malaya, Peninsula Malaysia, framed what became the theatre of conflict. This is an extremely long and rugged international frontier more than a thousand kilometers and an awful lot of it, particularly this massive stretch here in the second and third divisions of Sarawak, is the kind of exploration that only the hardiest and most determined of people can do. You really have to be intrepid jungle warriors to get anywhere near there. Still some of the most impassable terrain on the planet. So remote along the high rugged mountains in the borderlands right here, that even the illegal logging and massive land burning clearing of the plantations of the 21st century hasn't quite got up there yet. This is still one place where the orangutans can roam freely. And then also important micro-theater of war are these close inshore waters around Singapore, to which I referred a little bit earlier, and I think I'll be moving back to this map at some point, just to make the point that Singapore was very much a frontline city in every respect when the Indonesian authorities made the inexplicable and very ill-advised decision to escalate this low-intensity conflict of theirs by launching direct attacks against Malaya and Singapore. Something they thought they could do ...from its very doorstep, from territory they considered to be secure and friendly. The big point here is that it was neither. So we are looking at a frontier problem. And if the issue was the use of Malaysia to determine an outcome in Indonesia... ...or a challenge posed to a neo-colonial project that Sukarno decided... ...represented a sinister British attempt to try and remain a big power in Southeast Asia... What role did the frontier play? The areas that I will talk particularly about, those that I know the most about, and those actually that are the most accessible and therefore where most of the military operations took place, this area southwest of Kuching, the frontline city of Sarawak, a small percentage of the overall land territory of Sarawak, but responsible for about 80% of all of the military operations in the entire conflict, And I will especially mention a couple of small villages right up here at the peninsula north of Semitent. But the one that I know best, in the area that I know best, a small village right along the border here named Stas, Kampong Stas, at the end of a road that now exists as a result of confrontation from the old Chinese gold mining town of Bao. This area, particularly along here from Tebedu, where the first military incursion took place, up to Stas, was really the military epicenter of confrontation. And it was an area in which the long-established international frontier, the old Dutch-British colonial frontier that came to be inherited by post-colonial Indonesia and now Malaysia, cut arbitrarily across Bidayu territory. There are, broadly speaking, two subdivisions of the Dayak people in Sarawak, the Iban, or Sea Dayak, and the Bidayu, or Hill Dayak. The Badayu, most of whom are now Christian, in fact, a large majority Catholic, lived in this particular area southwest of Kuching, but had never paid any attention whatsoever to the international frontier. This had been their space from time immemorial, and about half their population lived in deep in what is now Kalimantan. That has changed somewhat, partly as a result of confrontation. But that was the situation in 1963. Not the first time the world or even the British saw a frontier running through the middle of an ethnic territory which conceived of the space somewhat differently, but it turned out to be quite decisive in this case. So traditional patterns of settlement and agriculture, networks of trade and barter, really defined the way that people lived in both the Straits of Malacca and Singapore around the Rio Islands, and in this borderland southwest of Kuching. In the Straits of Malacca and Straits of Singapore, on both sides of the water, both in Peninsular Malaya and in the Riau Islands and in the southern part of Sumatra, the population tended to be various sub ethnic groups, particularly the Bugis of the Malay peoples, who also had never paid any real attention to any line drawn down the middle of an ocean strait by British and Dutch colonial authorities. They had for many generations been carrying out a barter trade economy and an ocean-going fishery in which they really relied on these networks that moved back and forth across the Straits of Malacca from left to right without really paying any attention to the efforts of the state on either side to control, regulate, or even divide this economic activity. That was largely undisturbed, and because the waters were so fruitful or plentiful, and so mild there's a good reason why Singapore is one of the busiest ports in the world, it's a gigantic sheltered anchorage about 30 miles long that the fishery was extremely busy and the barter trade was plied on a very regular basis by even the smallest of boats which could go back and forth relatively easily in a night the border however also raised the question of the intersection between these traditional ways of living and traditional understandings of construing space social and economic space and efforts by the modern state both the colonial and the post-colonial state to draw an entirely different kind of spatial distinction and to use that spatial distinction to try and foster develop, encourage, regulate new networks new networks that integrated these traditional ways of living and commerce and agriculture into more modern global capitalist patterns of commerce, trade and etc. etc and also modern notions of identity, notions that tried to add on to existing ethnic understandings with the concept of citizenship. This was particularly problematic in a place like Sarawak, of course, which had gone so quickly from being the private fiefdom of the Burke family to a British crown colony to now part of a state with which it had never really had any political affiliation. The only political or constitutional tie that bound Sarawak, for example, and Malaya is that they had both been dominated for a very long time by British power. There was a fair bit of commerce between them, but that often unfolded along older traditional sub-capitalist networks as well, particularly Chinese. So this was an area where by the early 1960s, older long-established traditional patterns of living and behaving and perceiving had begun to run into and intersect with and bump off of efforts to reconstruct or to construct a quite different division of space and reorder the behavior of people within that. Nothing particularly unique in this, but a volatile flashpoint at this point in time in this part of Southeast Asia. So this began to look more and more to me like something I was becoming a little bit familiar with in some of the reading that I had begun to do in more social scientific approaches to understanding frontiers. Was this a case of an overlapping zone of movement versus control? Was this a case of an older, more traditional way of life attempting to preserve itself against efforts by an outside power to redefine or restructure it? Was this a case of something designed facing something imposed? To apply a little bit, and just a little bit, of these more theoretical approaches to this particular problem, I took an interest, and this is just a small sample in some of the relevant literature out there, in these two works. Noboro Ishikawa was an anthropologist who did field work in the very part of Borneo that I became interested in, the borderlands to the west and southwest of Kuching. And he tried to understand how the construction of identity, particularly ethnic identity, copes with living in liminal zones where modern states, which try to establish notions of citizenship, may or may not be able effectively to regulate the behavior of people at this geographical periphery, at the end, if you will, of the space over which they claim authority. That wasn't so much the case for Malaysia. Kuching was very close by. It wasn't difficult for the new Malaysian state to make its presence felt. It was extremely difficult for Indonesia, for whom the border region of Kalimantan southwest of Kuching was very remote, very remote from any real center of power or authority. If you really go back to where power came from in Sukarno's Indonesia, that was West Java and Jakarta. But the nearest urban center in Kalimantan, Borneo, was Pontianak, which is 10 times farther from the border region than Kuching was. Kuching was right on top of it. So mounting any kind of military campaign on the part of the Indonesians against this borderland west of Kuching was reaching pretty far out. Bit of a logistic grasp for them and the peoples living in this part of Kalimantan lived quite far away from what was now trying to establish itself as the center with whom they were supposed to identify. Ishikawa actually came up with an argument that people who were living in a certain village, whoops, right here up at the top of the peninsula, whose nearest Malaysian town was Samatan, and who actually found it easier to get to the Kalimantan side of the border to trade right, and to fish, found themselves cut off and deprived so badly by the conflict because, of course, this became a closed military area with uh, maximum military presence, that they regarded confrontation as this complete disaster which utterly destroyed their way of life and forced them into the unloving arms of a state with which they did not identify. What really intrigued me about that is that I found an extremely different experience in these villages farther to the south, southwest of Kuching, which did not suffer from the particular geographic quirk of being out at the end of the long peninsula and cut off by a very large mountain and a deep jungle. And they had had a very different experience (coughs) of confrontation and told something very different about it, particularly regarding their identity with the state which now claimed allegiance from them. The other work that I'd like to point out from a theoretical point of view, Joel Migdal's collection of essays which really talks about a whole Variety, nothing specific to Southeast Asia or Indonesia, of states and societies in the struggle to shape identities and local practices, that spoke to me as something that had perhaps wider implications for the problems that I was trying to understand. It appeared to me as if there was a collision between state projects, whether it was the project to create Malaysia or the project by Indonesia to use that Malaysia for its own purposes. The collision between those state projects and long-established local practices, particularly interesting in Sarawak because of the state of flux that this political change had forced Sarawakians into. One of the weak points in the Commonwealth case for establishing Malaysia was the ascertainment of the will of the populations of Sarawak and Sabah. This was rushed, it was a little bit cooked, both Sukarno and Subandrio had a point here when they said that this was a bit of a put-up job and, in fact, Singapore carries a large share of the blame for this in their desperate hurry to consummate Malaysia by insisting that everything must unfold in the manner agreed on the date stipulated. The evidence seems pretty clear to me that the populations of Sarawak and Sabah were not 51%. Yes, we want to be part of Malaysia. At the very best, this was an alternative they would accept if it was... Really, the only thing they had, what they wanted, was for the British to stay, at least for a little while longer, until the territories could federate within themselves and make up their own minds about where their future should lay. If there was a majority wish, it seemed to be that. But even these Bidayu populations southwest of the urban area in Kuching had now been dragged into this argument and had realized that the lifestyle that they had lived for generations... A lifestyle which the Brook dynasty had taken great pains not to disturb in that classic old 19th century approach to empire where you impose very lightly a superstructure of higher administration on a society that you disturb as little as possible. That All of that was now going to change. That they were going to be dragged into this newly restructured Southeast Asia whether they liked it or not. Ishikawa talked about swidden farming ad nauseum, so I thought I'd throw this in and send him a picture of it. Swidden farming is dry rather than wet. Terrace farming in the inlands, and this is one of thousands of examples all along this part of the, uh, the border between Sarawak and Kalimantan, where the population of the small villages, most of whom jungle farm, that is, they don't clear lots of land, they just plant things in and amongst the existing foliage. The one exception is rice when it's a cash crop, As soon as one of the large modern capitalist plantations starts systematically strip-burning an area, which of course generates all the pollution that has made our lives so miserable out there, all the villagers in the area rush out and strip-burn the area that they wish to farm as well, because it's a lot easier than laboriously hacking it all down. He talked about Swidden farming up in the peninsula, a lot of it goes on there too, and of course The point to be made here is that if the the patch of land that you wanted to cultivate, because its time had come and it sat there long enough, happened to be on the other side of the border, that didn't matter to the Bidayu. If it was their grandfather's land or their uncle's land or everybody in the village knew that that had always been their land, then it didn't matter whether somebody from Pontianak or Kuching said otherwise, they were going to continue to do it. Not a problem up until 1963. Then it started to become a very big problem. You could also go back in time and take a look at studies of this particular borderland and see some patterns of continuity here. Eric Tagliacozzo's very interesting study, Secret Trades, Porous Borders, made clear that from the latter decades of the 19th century, when the colonial states began to keep more accurate records, what they called smuggling, what the Budayu called trade, barter, and commerce, was in their eyes endemic. And this was one of the few things that the Dutch colonial authorities and the Brook colonial authorities were inclined to agree on. That if there was any movement of people and goods back and forth across the line that they recognized as demarking their space, this is something they should know about. So there was nothing new here. This military confrontation that erupted in 1963 interfered with a very well-established, deeply entrenched pattern of behavior and activity. And then you could take it further forward in time and look at my colleague Jamie Davison's study of rebellion to riots, violence in Borneo, in which he argues that it was the attempt to impose Indonesian state power in these remote regions in Kalimantan, and all that that entailed, with the policy of resettlement of populations and the politicization of ethnic identity in the attempt to construct an Indonesianness, that triggered such endemic violence in Kalimantan which marred so heavily the new order of Suharto for so many years in the 1970s and 1980s pointing in particular to anti-Chinese pogroms which became endemic in Kalimantan often justified by pointing back to Confrontasi and saying that all the Chinese were communists that they brought this trouble to our part of the world that if we could only get rid of them then everything would be peaceful and quiet again. So, whether it was looking into theory, looking back in time, or looking forward, it appeared to me that here was another interesting case of a conflict, admittedly at a low level militarily, which seemed to be heavily influenced by the fact that the border appeared to be one thing in the eyes of the governments who were trying to define and understand their military disagreement, and in the eyes of the people whose space they were moving armed forces into and through. The Jackboy Bedayu refers to that group of Bedayu who live around these three ridges in the southwest of Kuching. The map comes from Peter Dickens' study of SAS operations in confrontation in Borneo, which particularly identifies a series of so-called claret cross-border raids or ambushes sprung after authorization by the British government in the summer of 1964 to take the offensive into Kalimantan to disrupt Indonesian preparations and activity by trying to preempt Indonesian incursions into Malaysia by pushing them back from the border and keeping them off balance. Most of the most significant ones occurred in the territory which had been lived in for at least 250 years, as far back as anyone can remember in their oral history tradition by the Jagoi Bedali. Jagoi is a large ridge which, as most of them do along this stretch of the frontier, cuts across the frontier at 90 degree angles, which is extremely inconvenient if you're trying to defend it, because it acts as a nice sort of avenue to get across the frontier, rather than lining up perpendicular, which would be easier to bar and block. It is the area that I came to know best, really because I stumbled on it. One fine day, my very first trip to Kuching, I drove out to Bao, nosed around, talked to a couple of people I'd been introduced to, went out to what was the end of the road, didn't know at the time it turned out to be a military road built for confrontation and found myself in the village of Stas. Sitting there having a cold beer, they're all Catholic, they love to drink beer, asking questions, it turned out that this was something of a badge of honor for the village. They really regarded Confrontasi as the event that brought them fully into contact with the rest of the world. Intriguing. So I spent a lot of the next three years moving back and forth in Stassen area, and increasingly, after every trip to the archives and every trench of documents, trying to test and apply what I was learning from the official records by walking the ground and talking to some of the people who'd been involved. These are some of them. This is my particular friend, Mr. J. Atura, director of the Chinese Museum, but the rest... These three men from StAS all served from 1964 to 1966 in a force organized by British Force Borneo called the Border Scouts, which was at first misused. It was at first relied on as a border security force. The idea was that you took the people who knew the ground the best and gave them the weapons and the responsibility to be the first line of defense, but they were neither properly trained nor properly equipped for this. And when the raiding parties began to include larger numbers of Indonesian regular soldiers and things were starting to get militarily difficult, British forces Borneo changed the role of the border scouts and made them what they should have been all along, their eyes and ears, their tripwire, if you will, the people who knew the ground better than anybody else. That turned out to be a masterstroke because a lot of these people, this man here, for instance, lived on the other side of the border. Again, I emphasize that these were all kith and kin connections These three men are all cousins. These two have lived in Stas all their life. He drops by on a daily basis, even though he still lives on the Indonesian side of the border. And even though he lived in Kalimantan, he served the entire conflict in the border scouts in Sarawak. The map that they showed me, this is a standard British Ordnance Survey map from 1962. And I'm sorry about how faded it is. It will be difficult for you to see this. But this indicates the particular cross-border operations that these men participated in. And it corresponds very closely to the map in Peter Dickens' book that he took from SAS records, to which he was given access by some SAS veterans who had brought some of their papers out with them, which they weren't supposed to do, but he did it anyway. And what's interesting about it is that these men acted as the advanced reconnaissance force and then the guides to bring the SAS or Gurkha or line infantry units to and from the sites that they were supposed to either spring an ambush at, or eyeball, or overrun and destroy. And in every case, probably because of the need to make sure that these operations were deniable. In fact, it was one of the rare occasions, certainly post-Second World War, where the British government is on record in cabinet minutes as saying that these operations will be disavowed if anyone is caught on the other side of the border, These men were never really given any credit for the work they did on the Kalimantan side. And while I have the utmost respect for the ability of both the SAS and the conventional British regular line infantry of the 1960s, which quite frankly was very good, the standard of field craft was very high, it's also clear to me that without the local knowledge provided by these men on both sides of the border, that the bar that was set for them might have been too high for them to get over. Not only were they to successfully carry out these raids as deep as 10 kilometers on the Indonesian side of the border against an oftentimes larger force without having the luxury of helicopter rescue or artillery support, there could be no overt, undeniable military operations on the Indonesian side of the frontier. They were to do all of this without leaving anybody behind, dead or alive. Now, it struck me that that wouldn't have been possible without the help, the systematic help, of a group of people who knew every inch of that territory, every trail, every shortcut. And indeed, according to my border scout friends and staff, that was exactly the case. They were not shy in taking full credit for helping the SAS win the war. In fact, they emphasized to me how important it was to know where and when to get across the border, at what time of year, and in what way. Along a ridgeline like Jagoi, that doesn't appear very difficult, and really it's not. But when you're going through, this is actually the international frontier for part of the stretch, southwest of Kuching, north of Stas, between Sarawak and Kalimantan. When you're going along this small stream in the wet season, uh, it's easy enough to do if you're sitting in a dugout and paddling yourself along. Try it in the dry season <laughs> when that's the exact same stretch of country. And if you're determined enough, it's easy enough to get through. But everybody knows where the fordable parts are. Obviously, the people who knew the area best were those who'd lived there all their lives. On the other side of the border, the most interesting footprint of all of this was the difference between the villagers in Stas on the Sarawak side and on the Kalimantan side. Now, many years had passed. By the time I got there, more than 40 years had elapsed since the end of confrontation, and the Indonesian army had for a long time been following a policy the or dual function policy of nation building being one of its responsibilities as well as military defense. One of the ways in which that policy was interpreted was to practice the old imperial strategy of the the settler soldier. Soldiers who'd served 10 or 15 years and achieved senior NCO or junior officer rank were retired by being given land grants out somewhere in the provinces along the frontier and made village headmen. This is precisely what had happened here. An old, abandoned Bedayu village, about 15 kilometers on the Kalimantan side from Stas, had been revived and taken over by Malay peoples resettled from Java, led by this young man here, who was the village headman, who was a retired Indonesian army sergeant major. When we first arrived, led by the villagers from Stas, who knew these people well. when they saw myself and my friend Jaya from Singapore. They were extremely suspicious and quite unfriendly. And I was a little taken aback because after two years of journeying around, this is the first time I'd encountered that reaction. So when I asked them, what's the problem here, it dawned on me after about ten minutes that they thought that we were from an NGO and we were interested in illegal logging and we wanted to film them and write reports and wrap them out to the government, which had adopted one of its periodic policies, this was 2006, of zealously cracking down on illegal logging and smuggling. As soon as I assured them that I could care less about illegal logging and smuggling, actually I do care, but I told them that I could care less and that I had an entirely different agenda, it changed instantly. All of a sudden they became very proud of the fact that they knew all about the military history of this region, he in particular, the village headman, and they would take me to exactly where the claret patrols launched by the British soldiers had been the most successful, and in fact they proudly insisted that they would show me one particular ambush site where the SAS, according to them, every British soldier is in the SAS, had completely destroyed an Indonesian unit in May of 1965, which was rather late in the day. So assuming they'd be as good as their word, we trekked through the jungle for what felt like 500 kilometers, but I think was only about five. And eventually, indeed, <laughs> there they produced, at the top of a ridge line, the remains of what looked like it had been a company position. Which indeed, according to the surviving records, even though the contact report placed it about five kilometers on the right side of the border, dovetailed with the documentary evidence that I'd found in the National Archives in Q. Yes, okay, this ambush seems to have worked, it had done very well, and how did they get there and how did they get back? The border scouts from the Badayu village in Stas. Why were they so helpful? This is what was most interesting both to myself and my students who really loved illegally crossing the border. I certainly hope there are no officials from the Malaysian or Indonesian government here today. <laughs> and when I told my dean this, she wasn't very happy either. And who don't seem to have been quite as intrepid at the end of the day. <clears throat> down, the, down, the, down the frontier a little bit from Stas, about 20 kilometers, the most interesting of the border towns in the Bedayu-Jagoi area, Sarakin, you can still see right there the seriousness and the zealousness with which the Indonesian and Malaysian authorities guard, control, and regulate this, what is for them, a remote area of the border. It's a dirt track, there's no vehicular traffic, so the smuggling therefore can only be on a minor level, not enough for anyone to make a significant rake-off from, so they don't pay that much attention to it. But sensibly enough, the modern government in Kuching has decided that if this is going to happen anyway, they may as well tax and control it. So five years ago, they built this market out of nowhere, right 10 meters inside the border, where they know the Indonesians will come and do the old barter trade. They now make it possible for them to do it in a cash economy. But again, a little bit of comic relief here. Farther down, another 10 kilometers or so to the south at the very end of Badayu Jagoi territory, This is the village headman, the Katua Kampong in Gumbang, which is smack on top of the dominant mountain peak in the whole area. From the top of Gumbang you can see 50 kilometers north and south along the frontier, swearing to me and I'm sure he's bullshitting that these were Indonesian heads that his people took in confrontation and again claiming that without him the British SAS, everybody is SAS, wouldn't have been able to achieve anything in confrontation. But it was really the guys in the Indonesian village in And the Kalimantan side of the border, myself and my friends meeting a couple of poachers, who happily admitted that that is what they were doing, wandering across the frontier, armed to the teeth. What are you guys doing? Oh, we're going to shoot some birds. And the only border guard we ever saw, and am I ever glad he was dead? That's a crate. And if you meet one of those, you're dead. It's really, really small. That's the problem. It's no bigger than this. You don't see it. It kills you. You're gone. The hazards of jungle trekking around the borderlands of Borneo. What? interested me the most was the confirmation I got from those on the Indonesian side not just but emphatically from this one village but the main reason why these operations on the Commonwealth side had been so effective is because the government was tolerated on the Malaysian side as an entity that appeared to be doing something positive and interfering with their lives as little as possible and in fact providing them things they wanted and did not have a road to bow so that they could go to school more easily. Electricity, jobs without doing too much damage to their existing way of life. Whereas on the other side villagers who had lived in this part of Kalimantan for generations were finding themselves being forcibly drafted or conscripted into the Indonesian army whether they liked it or not. Compelled sometimes at the point of a gun to provide guide service whether they liked it or not by people who This I did not know, I should have known, and it became the most interesting dynamic, by people who they saw as every bit as alien as the white men from the UK. These were Javanese, representing a government that emanated from Jakarta, with no local legitimacy or credibility, who were barely even able to communicate in the same dialect, who appeared to be bringing an agenda that paid no attention to the desires or the needs of the local people in what was a very remote jungle-dominated area of Kalimantan with minimal infrastructure and no services and making no effort whatsoever to provide one. So whether by design or simply by stumbling on it, it appears that the overused phrase hearts and minds played very much into the military dynamic in this part of the border with the murky state of governance in Jakarta and the bad record-keeping that brought primary sources down to us today, and that is to launch so-called Operation A. Nominally, it was under the control of the Central Intelligence Agency, which reported nominally to the Foreign Minister, Dr. Subandrio, but it appears that most of the direction and the muscle and the manpower came from the Air Force, which provided the Special Forces troops, who did a lot of the heavy lifting, the Marines, which conducted a few of the operations, and the National Police, whose leadership was quite radical and inclined to an escalation of confrontation. The reason Operation A, launching direct attacks across the Straits of Malacca against Malaya and Singapore, turned out to be so consequential is that it was a diplomatic disaster. Up until August of 1964, there was some ambivalence in what had become the very important Afro-Asian bloc of the United Nations. That was the term in common usage at the time. There was some ambivalence regarding the whole process of the ascertainment of the will of the people of Sabah and Sarawak, some sympathy, or at least hesitation and indecision, regarding who was right and wrong and the justice of the case and the arguments being presented by Indonesia and Malaysia. The Philippines, for instance, which was pressing its own rather dubious and far-fetched claim to Sabah, was inclined to piggyback diplomatically along with Indonesia and give it diplomatic support in international forums. But launching direct armed incursions against Malaya and Singapore was another story altogether, and three of them in particular were especially egregious. The very first seaborne incursion launched by more than a hundred armed men along the southwest coast of the state of Johor on the 17th of August, Merdeka Day, at about the same time that President Sukarno was making his usual four-and-a-half hour bombastic speech. An incredibly inept Airborne operation in the middle of northern Johor. One plane crashed in the middle of the sea and was never heard from again. The other two dropped their 89 paratroopers, some regulars, some volunteers, right next to a Malaysian police station, which was five miles down the road from a garrison battalion on a railway line near the town of Labis. These people had soldiers and Malaysian policemen on top of them before the night was out. And of course it was not deniable. It was an airborne drop from C-130 aircraft flying out of Jakarta that dropped paratroopers in the middle of Malaysia. There could be no question that this was an outright invasion of Malaysian soil. And some of the the paratroopers were even carrying identities that established their status as Indonesian regulars, Army NCOs. And finally, there was another operation along the west coast of Malacca here on the 29th of August by 52 men who managed to land 15 minutes away from the base of 4th Commonwealth Brigade, which consisted of a British and Australian and a New Zealand battalion based at Tarandak, just north of Malacca. Along the entire west coast of Malaysia, there was only one combat-ready brigade, and they landed 15 minutes south of it. They didn't last long either. And the problem with all of this is that it was so egregious. No one denied the legitimate status of Malaya, which had been established in 1957, internationally recognized, immediately uh, granted membership in the United Nations. And the question of whether or not the merger of Singapore into Malaysia was legitimate was quite different qualitatively from whether or not the merger of Sabah and Sarawak was legitimate. Even the Philippines had to bail and stop supporting Sukarno and the Indonesian government after this. What made this look especially foolish in my eyes is how utterly futile all of these operations were militarily. There are a couple of interesting side dimensions to this. One of the themes that runs through British literature on confrontation is how incredibly skillful and brave all of the claret operations that went into Kalimantan were. Now, I don't deny that. To move covertly across a border in difficult terrain like that, carry out fighting patrols, ambushes, Knock off Indonesian rifle companies, overrun entire fire bases, and get out without losing and leaving a man behind. That takes some military skill. But they were strictly restricted to 10 kilometers, and they had every opportunity to get back if they had carried out their advance to contact successfully and not been detected. These operations, on the other hand, involved sending men either by air, which is especially foolish or across the Straits of Malacca in small, open sampans, 15 or 20 feet boat, which are utterly indefensible. If they were detected on the open water, they were dead. To then land on the coast of Malaya, which they had been led to believe would be friendly. But this turned out absolutely not to be the case. They were not given any kind of an encouraging, friendly, or supportive reception anywhere on the south, west, or east coasts of Johor. And their objectives, their military objectives, were to penetrate into these mountain areas deep in the middle of the state of Johor here, which the Indonesian authorities had been assured by elements of the Malayan Communist Party, who'd been out of the country for four or five years by this time, were still chock full of communist sympathizers or communist cadres, smarting from their defeat in the emergency, lying low, very anti-Kuala Lumpur and the Malayan state, and just itching for the opportunity to rise up in rebellion and reignite the revolution. And that required, in one instance, an inland penetration of more than 50 kilometers. So actually, from the point of view of field craft, of soldiering, What these Indonesians, regulars and volunteers, were being asked to do was far, far more difficult than what the SAS and the other Commonwealth forces were being asked to do in Borneo. They were being asked to go a lot farther in a lot more defenseless conditions and then move into an area where they were asked not to do a quick butcher and bolt or a smash and grab, but to plant themselves down in the middle of a hostile country and to assume that all the intelligence they'd been given about a friendly local reception would be correct and then to draw on that reception from the local population to do what? Well, it appears that the narrative unfolded along the lines of creating liberated areas in the middle of Malaya, according to classic revolutionary warfare strategy, igniting a communist and anti-Malaya revolution, and watching the whole country implode. Given how spectacularly unsuccessful all these operations were, it struck me that this must have been the absolute waste of brave men who were willing to do something on a wing and a prayer. And I wondered whether the same kind of local investigation that had led me to draw some different conclusions about the fighting along the Borneo land borders might also be in order here. It turned out, I think, to be the case. Crossing the Straits of Malacca and Sanpens is easy enough to do unless you have the whole Far East fleet waiting for you with its two aircraft carriers and ten destroyers and frigates and all the backup of the Far East Air Force. However, they weren't so much of a threat because of this tacit agreement that nobody would escalate confrontation if they could absolutely avoid it. But there were plenty of small, fast craft in both the Marine police and in the Far East fleet and if these sandpans were caught on the waters, they were absolutely defenseless. Some were. In fact, this was optimal because if they got on shore, it would be harder, even if they didn't have a friendly local reception to round them up and deal with them. Some were not. What they counted on was the massive, everyday use of the Straits of Malacca and Singapore by this long-established, generations-old pattern of economic behavior on both sides of the Straits from Sumatra and the Riau Islands, from Singapore and Malaya. On any given night, apparently in 1964, and all of this began in August 1964, there were some 2,500 fishing boats outworking the inshore fishery in the Straits of Malacca and the Straits of Singapore. As Far East Fleet reported time and time again, even with radar coverage that was able to connect from Penang all the way to Singapore without leaving any gaps, It was extremely difficult to spot what you were looking for with that much traffic. If the enemy was using exactly the same kind of boats and moving into such a heavily used and heavily trafficked area, then it was rather easy for him to hide in plain sight, to move among the crowd. Now that struck me as tactically clever, and I wondered therefore why they didn't have more success. Perhaps this particular interception by an Australian destroyer might suggest one reason – when you've got 25 or 30 fit, military age young men sitting on the roof of a fishing boat, doing nothing, straying quite close to the coast of Singapore. I guess that looks a little bit suspicious. But more to the point, close and narrow waters, which made them difficult to find, the target area, the inland hills in southern Johor. Here was the trick. If the security forces in Malaya and Singapore had any idea whatsoever what operating base the Indonesians were going to launch a penetration from, whether it was a small two-man sabotage operation or one of the larger 50 or 100 men armed incursions. Then they knew exactly the area on the coast opposite that they had to patrol because it was absolutely imperative for these raiders, given the equipment they were using, to get across in one night. Now, along the equator, of course, the night is very, very reliable. In January, it gets dark about 7 p.m. In July, it gets dark about 7.30 p.m. That's the extent of it. So you've got half the day to get across, which means calculating how fast these boats can go, where can they reach. If ever they could get reliable information about where the rates were coming from, any advance warning whatsoever then using economy of force, putting their assets, their fast patrol boats and their radar coverage in the right area at the right time, the interception rate could go right up. How could they get that? They weren't allowed to penetrate too close to the Indonesian side of the international frontier in the middle of the straits, because this was to be presented to the rest of the world as a defensive campaign. There were to be no apparently aggressive incursions into into Indonesian space. The local intel that I thought must have played a big role turned out indeed to be decisive. This was just the most interesting of the 40 or so Indonesian participants in this campaign that I was able to interview. And this man, a local businessman named Himan Suprajis, retired now, he's 70 odd years old, in Tanjung Penang, the large city in the island of Bintang, just south east of Singapore, recounted to me when I interviewed him on the 1st of March 2010 a very interesting story. He had come from Java. He'd been sent up to Riau to lead a, uh, to lead a, a subversion team, which was to go into Singapore. He was in his mid-20s. He was a fanatical supporter of Sukarno, who he absolutely idolized as the father of the nation, the great leader of the revolution, the man who would fulfill the dream of uniting all of the Malay peoples and driving the Western powers out of Southeast Asia. He also told me, more credibly because he took notes at the time and showed me them, that there were Malayan Communist Party and local Chinese operating on Bintan Island, that they did help train volunteers like himself, and that they themselves went on operations. And in fact, he used a very interesting phrase. He said, these people had fought the British in Malaya in the 1950s and gotten away, had made the trek into southern Thailand, and they were serious hardcore jungle fighters, And with them in the lead and the assurance that they would link up with the old friends they'd left behind in southern Johor, we all felt that things would be well. That we would achieve something. And he also argued less convincingly, without extant notes taken at the time, that there were mainland Chinese PLA advisors operating in the area as well. You get a lot of those whispers in British intelligence reports, but I've never seen any really reliable evidence that that's the case. I'm not denying for a moment that it may well have happened, haven't as yet come across any strong evidence. And there were also, and this to him was the key, and this was the main reason why he was willing to talk to me at such length. We spoke for about six hours. Very big promises made about the local support that he and his comrades from Java could expect in Malaya. What happened, and the statistics come from Far East Fleet Operations, from a summary report done in December 1965 is that the termination of the barter trade, which was a defensive measure that the Malaysian government, with the support of the UK government, imposed because this boat traffic was being used to hide these incursions, absolutely infuriated the locals on both sides of the straits, in Johor and in Sumatra, because it ruined them. It was ruining their livelihood. Typically, this was logging that was being carried out in Sumatra, taken over in barter boats to the west coast of Johor, but there was also some barter trade going on in Singapore or with Singapore as well. That Operation A depended too heavily on local boatmen. In fact, Supraji pointed out what at least a dozen others pointed out as well. While they had the enthusiasm to take the war to Malaysia, they didn't know the waters and they signally failed to get enough willing cooperation from Riau Islanders who knew the waters, who knew the best time to go, who knew the best places to infiltrate on the Malayan coast because they'd been doing it for generations, smuggling and bartering. It depended too heavily on local boatmen who were too often conversed, uh, coerced. Sorry, Singapore was far too strongly defended, and here he, he insisted. He insisted without ever being able to give me chapter and verse or smoking gun that it was locals tipping off the enemy. Intrigued by this, I went and did some checking, and it turns out indeed that the telephone networks were never cut off, and doing a little bit more digging, after January of 1965, when Far East Fleet finally realized that they shouldn't have Malay policemen asking questions of boatmen about incursions across the straits, that naval officers should be present in interrogations, they started to ask the right people the right questions, and three things came up again and again and again. One, too many boatmen, whether they were Riau Islanders or Malayans, were being coerced at the point of a gun by these raiding parties to lead them safely to their designated incursion point on the shores of Malaya or Singapore. And if in the process the man's boat was hijacked or destroyed, then you had just made an enemy out of somebody, particularly if you were supposed to be on his side and had come from his village. Two... The fishery was also disrupted, and that was an even greater economic vested interest than the barter trade, and swung the Chinese business interest in Tanjung penang that controlled most of the fishery in the Riau Islands because they bought the fish. That was the big market where the fish catch was brought on shore, swung them against this whole project of bringing the war into the Straits of Malacca and Straits of Singapore. And three, it appeared that through business and family connections, People were literally telephoning Singapore, particularly from Tanjung Penang, and giving the Navy the intelligence that they needed the most. They're going to come tonight or tomorrow night, and they're going to come from this base, not that base, which made it possible to economize force more accurately, to put more assets in the place they needed to be, and the interception rate soared very, very quickly. Whereas the interception rate to January and February 1965 had been running about 50-50, within two weeks it was at 80%. I will step over Labis and in a drop-in and I will make the following argument having gone on too long. As far as the land war southwest of Kuching is concerned, from the point of view of Bidoi, Jagayu, and Stas and the other nearby villages along that stretch of the frontier, the war coming to Sarawak and the border area brought development, quote-unquote, and the state to the region and the people on one side in a way that they saw as being to their benefit. And it aligned local attitudes against the Indonesian state narrative, which was that this ascertainment had been a farce and that the people of Sarawak had been shoehorned into Malaysia, which may have been fair comment. But it aligned local attitudes among the Bidayu, in particular on both sides of the border against this Indonesian narrative. This was seen as a Javanese incursion. This was a great military advantage to Commonwealth covert offensive operations, again, not taking away from the military skill or the conduct and control of operations, but at the very least acting as a force multiplier, which greatly helped them carry out what turned out to be the most militarily important campaign of the whole war, which was keeping the larger Indonesian ground force off balance, keeping it on its own side of the border as much as possible. And in the long run, according to all my friends in Stas, it really tied the Bedayu to the Malaysia project. And according to Jamie Davidson and other scholars, it really compromised West Kalimantan comprehensively by getting relations between the distant authority in Jakarta and the peripheral peoples on the margin of this Indonesian territory off on the wrong foot and poisoning them ever since. Whereas Operation A in the Riau Triangle came to be seen very quickly by the people operating at sea on both sides of the straits as an imposition from Java, an imposition that was destroying their livelihood and interfering with trade and traffic and fishery and commerce that they had come to see as their birthright. Because all of these things were disrupted, sides were taken, and there was active and covert resistance. This was especially important because the Indonesians made every effort to camouflage themselves physically as operating from fishing villages and moving in amongst the fishery. When they too often resorted to heavy-handed coercion to force the fishery or the barter traders to give them their necessary assistance, this pushed those very people to act against them. Once again, I think this was a crucial force multiplier for the Commonwealth, and I don't think we can overlook the magnetic economic pull of Singapore either. So I am suggesting that while I'm not trying to revise the argument that this was a remarkably successful and economical use of force, it had an awful lot more to do than is generally acknowledged by UK-based memoirs or secondary sources or even official reports compiled at the time and plunked in the DEFE series with local attitudes, local agency, and particular with the relatively deft and light touch used by one side in negotiating relationships with the border peoples as opposed to the clumsy, heavy-handed, and surprisingly alien presence used on the other side. I apologize for rabbiting on so long. Thank you very much. I'd
0: like to thank you for a fascinating talk. We can now move towards questions, but do please have a drink first because I think you need to. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I'll. I don't know if there are any. Maybe take about three questions. Um, Do we need a microphone? Okay, fine. We need a microphone for each of you because of the recording. So there is a roving microphone right there. We'll start off with a question over there. We'll maybe take two questions at a time and then. Happy
1: to. Yeah, I'm in your hands.
0: That was a really great talk. Um, and I was wondering that, you know, you mentioned that the conflict itself was shaped very much by these transnational linkages of ethnic groups on both sides of the border, particularly in Borneo. And I was wondering, though, if the conflict itself also reshaped the ethnic compositions on both sides of the border. Or whether, of course, this, you know, you mentioned, for instance, that the Indonesian settled soldiers in imperial settler fashion in various villages on the border. And whether this had an effect over the long term after of potassium on the uh, composition on both
1: sides? I think yes, more so in Borneo than in Singapore and Malaya, though. Yeah. Um, in, uh, in the state of Johor, it didn't provoke any great movement of peoples. In fact, barter trade still persists, although on a very low scale. And it didn't immediately have any impact on relations across the straits between the Riau Islands and Singapore either. Much later, uh, 15, 20, 25 years later, when the Riau Islands became part of uh, a joint Indonesian Singapore development agreement, and an awful lot of Javanese and Sumatran labor began to be imported, then, yeah, we saw the same sort of destabilizing interactions that had happened earlier in Kalimantan. But I think it's probably not reasonable to trace that to Konfrontasi. Kalimantan is a different story. I think that the the violence that plagued Western Kalimantan for so long, that very area between Pontianak and the border with Sarawak, does derive very directly from the effort, the heavy-handed, clumsy, and ultimately disastrously failed effort on the part of the Indonesian state of the time to try and turn that into a frontline military zone and to use that as a platform or a base to try to destabilize the one area of Sarawak that really mattered, the relatively heavily settled western area around Kuching. Later on, the attempt to try and damp that problem down and make it part of the larger policy of moving populations around, which was such a feature of Suharto's nation-binding policy for so long, caused problems that were arguably as great as anywhere in Indonesia, except for possibly East Java, and I think it's fair to argue that those roots can be directly traced to confrontation as well. The murky area in all of this is anti-Chinese violence in Kalimantan. I am not by any means well-versed in this. Those of my colleagues who are, argue about this. There are some who say that confrontation mattered a great deal, that contingency really did reshape the dynamic here, there are others who say that anti-Chinese feelings were very old and easily stirred up and are rather cyclical in that part of Indonesia, and therefore confrontation didn't have that much of an impact. I honestly don't know where the weight of evidence lies there. Okay, um. Charles?
0: Yeah. Well, could you say something about the involvement of the use of the Gurkhas? in the conflict. And what you picked up from locals with long memories on both sides of the border about use certainly in my experience, memories lasted quite long in the Indonesian military.
1: Indeed, they did. Um, the Bedayu on the Malaysian side of the border seemed to remember the Gurkhas better and with more discrimination than the Malay and Bedayu on the Indonesian side of the border. It was striking how SAS-focused the people on the Indonesian side of the border were. But the Bedayu who had lived with British forces along that part of the border, there was a base camp, one of 27 along the, the international frontier. There was a, a, a company, an infantry company base camp right in Stas, right on the site of where their village school is. And three of the battalion rotations in those three years were Gurkha. There were two Australian battalions stationed there, two British, and three Gurkha. And the Gurkhas were the favorite. The Stas people liked the Gurkhas the most, even though they were they were all unanimous in this, that everybody behaved fairly well, there were no problems. But apparently the Gurkhas married a lot of the local girls. Right? And, and this went down very well. And I think about half a dozen people said this. They said that they gained a lot of inspiration from seeing how successful these Asian soldiers were and how well regarded they were by the British. This was a striking contrast to the reputation gained by the Royal Malaysian Regiment's battalions that were stationed along the border, none of whom operated in this part of Sarawak. So I don't have any direct personal anthropological connection with this topic, but all of the paper evidence that we get, archival and secondary, points to really massive problems between local villagers and Malaysian infantry who behaved a little bit high-handedly, apparently treated them like peasants, particularly in Sabah didn't make a very good reputation for themselves, didn't get nation building off on a very good foot at all. As far as military operations were concerned, the Gurkhas, of course, were a key part of this. Nominally, the infantry formation in that part of the world under Far East Command is the 17th Gurkha Division. Their field craft was very good. There were never less than five Gurkha battalions on station at any one time, and the maximum deployed by the Commonwealth was 14 as low as 10, so they were a very significant part of the entire force contribution. Not only were they highly skilled and they scared the bejesus out of the Indonesians. The Indonesian army remembers the Gurkhas very well, even if villagers in Kalimantan don't. But priceless asset here. They did not vote in United Kingdom elections. They were not United Kingdom citizens who might become casualties and provoke political backlash. As consistently from January 63 to August 66, Whether it was the Conservative government, this began with Macmillan and ended with Wilson with his healthy majority. One consensus that all three Prime Ministers involved had here was that this has to be kept off the front pages, absolutely out of the eye of the press. This needs to be as low in profile as possible in domestic politics. This is really the first significant test of the post-National Service Army. We do not want heavy casualties. Tactical skill helped. The very wise and, in my opinion, war-winning decision to try and contain the war at as low a level of violence as possible helped. I think in this case the strategic direction of the Commonwealth was superb, but really kept them together and brought the Australians and the New Zealanders in as willing partners was the agreement that our goal here is to outlast the Indonesians. We do not want to fight. We merely wish to make it clear to them that we will not go away. We will protect Malaysia until they get tired of it and they change their minds. But above all else, it was Vietnam, which from this point of view, well, of course, it turned out to be a nightmare for everybody, provided a lot of cover for this British government project to keep this undeclared war against Indonesia as far away from the headlines as possible and as away from public controversy as possible. After the Gulf of Tonkin and American intervention in Vietnam, it's striking the degree to which British press coverage flocks up to Saigon and away from Jakarta, other than signature big events like, for instance, the ill-advised attack on Malaya itself. I, I guess I'd go so far as to say that the way the Commonwealth fought this war by relying on effective strategic direction, well-coordinated state policy, uh, the very careful and calibrated use of violence, and a real effort to cultivate good local relations, none of that would have been possible without the Gurkhas. Had they been dismantled, and that project was raised in 1961, and in fact, the man who really... ...set the model for how to conduct the fighting in Borneo. General Walker, who was the first commander of British forces Borneo. In 1961, he'd been commander of Gurkha forces... ...and, and when, when the government of the day actually considered dismantling the Gurkha contingent... Uh, ...Walker was one of those who lobbied strongly against it... ...and was glad that that lobby had succeeded and that the government came to no decision. That turned out to be, I think, as fortunate as the Ark Royal still being available in 1982... Because had the Gurkhas actually been dismantled, or even in the process of being dismantled, and had the decision remained that we must defend Malaysia, we cannot abandon it to the tender mercies of Sukarno, it is a vital British national interest that uh, the merger of Malaysia be brought to a successful consummation, then they would have had to take half the British army of the Rhine. I think it would have been very difficult to keep the whole thing as low profile as it was. It would have been a real game changer. So they were militarily absolutely essential and they seem to have done rather well politically on the ground as well. Yeah. Okay, a question from this side of the room. Thank you so much. Um, I still don't quite see who was aiming to benefit most from the Jakarta Javanese regime by the concentration of activities in this particular region, particularly
0: Wouldn't it have made sense to go
1: for Brunei or something as a more valuable strategic target? Couldn't get there. It was simply way too far. The jungle areas on the Indonesian side opposite Brunei were unsustainable. I, I think it would have challenged even the Americans to launch significant military operations against Brunei from that direction, operating from Java as a base. I mean, what you say makes perfect sense on one level, but militarily undoable. It did, however, lead me to an argument which I think puts me at, at real odds. This is what really divides scholars of confrontation, and that is the question, what was the conflict all about? In my view, there is still too much of a focus among the UK literature on confrontation being about protecting Malaysia and preventing Sukarno from restructuring Southeast Asia in a very different way. Whereas I actually think that the principal driver of confrontation was not stopping Malaysia, but answering the question, what kind of country was Indonesia going to be? I really think that confrontation is one of our classic examples of picking a fight with a foreign enemy to postpone or divert or distract what had become an intractable domestic problem. Sukarno had almost completely lined up with the Communist Party by 1962, because of his focus on revolution for its own sake, and yet he understood very well that the only effective institution of state that was doing anything to keep the country together physically and to drive its infrastructure development forward was in fact the army. So here he was leaning ideologically in one way, but pragmatically realizing in the other that there were bridges that he simply couldn't burn. So for a while, and everybody agrees with this, He tried the strategy of using his tremendous personal popularity with the people, which does seem to be borne out by the evidence, to position himself as the indispensable man and quite deliberately to foster this competition between the army on the one side and the communist party on the other, both of them needing him to be the indispensable man. But that was okay with the Dutch because they were fairly small beer. And when he persuaded the Kennedy administration to force the Dutch to give in on West New Guinea, then that issue was dealt, done and dusted. It was a different story altogether with the British, who were quite capable of defending Malaysia, even if they didn't get the active assistance of the United States, which they wanted, sought, and got, at least diplomatically and politically, but were quite capable of posing a militarily insoluble problem to the Indonesian army, which knew it. So by getting involved in a discussion about whether Malaysia was legitimate or not and making it an Indonesian national interest, Sukarno pretty much forced the issue in Jakarta. He, I think, had hoped that this in the fullness of time would decide itself one way or the other, but by picking on an enemy as big and important as Britain and by making an issue as high profile as Borneo, he really made the future of his project, his revolutionary project, the stakes of confrontation. That's a long-winded way of saying where I come down on all of this is that the confrontation was not about Malaysia. It was about Indonesia. It was about whether Indonesia would continue to be a revolutionary state pursuing what Sukarno was good at articulating rhetorically, but really weak at translating operationally into revolution for its own sake. And it appears that he really meant this. I mean, if Malaysia had fallen into his lap and the British had walked out of Southeast Asia, I'm sure he would have grabbed it with both hands. But when he talked about old established forces and new emerging forces and the need to remake the world, the closest I've been able to come to it is to argue that he really thought the best way to remake Indonesia was by remaking the world and that the two were deeply entwined. And he became convinced, I think by the summer of 1963, that his personal best way forward to keep Indonesia a dynamic revolutionary state perpetually moving forward in a state of agitation... Was to latch on to this issue and pick a fight with this foreign enemy, which is why he got so angry about the rush job in ascertaining Malaysia in August and September of 1963. He knew he had a case. He knew that the two samples of public opinion in Sabah and Sarawak were pretty ambivalent. There was no clear majority there, and he could position himself by saying, all I asked was that you work with me and we agree on how to transfer the constitutional status of these territories and freeze out those old established colonial powers who no longer belong in this region and should no longer have a say in discussing with this? What he couldn't see is that the Tunku and UMNO believed that that would be the mouse jumping in bed with the elephant. Nor did they really trust his radical agenda
0: either. So it's not a very quick don't think there's time for a quick follow-up publicly, but what I would suggest is that we finish this now. But anyone who still has a question, please corner the speaker on the way out. Again, thank you for a fascinating talk. I think this was a really, really good start to the term.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much.